Well, good morning, friends. It is so good to be with you again uh, this day. And uh, Gateway family, just know that you're loved and you're prayed for and you are thoroughly missed. And uh, we're so glad that uh, we can at least come to you. You can uh, see a, a couple of us and um, that we can spend time together in song and in the ministry of the Word. If you're visiting with us today from wherever it might be, it could be here in California, it could be locally, it could be from around the world. We know that there are some people that are tuning in from different places. We want to welcome you here also. And um, as was mentioned earlier, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of our time. And uh, we want it to be as, as respectful as possible. It's not the best case scenario. Um, we typically want to gather together uh, physically, be present with one another as we celebrate the Lord's table. But right now we are gathering as best we can through the live stream medium. And uh, we are planning on uh, celebrating the Lord's table um, in that fashion. Um, but we want to we do it in a way that truly comes before the Lord and, and, and communicates the desire of our heart. Uh, to, to see the gospel for what it really is. So uh, be mindful to prepare yourself and to be thinking about that as we move ahead. Well, as you know, we're working our way through the book of Exodus. It's been an incredible journey so far, and um, we are coming to a new stage in this book. And it is a stage in the book known as the Plague series. And this is really an, an epic story in the Old Testament narrative, the history of Israel. Now, I use the word story very carefully because the word story oftentimes makes it sound like it's a fable, like um, these things aren't real, but they are. Um, these are historical events that are recorded for us by God's uh, sovereign, breathed-out purposes. And um, so we want to we come to this section uh, this morning and, and really just begin our journey with an understanding. And so um, I would like this morning for us to read Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to begin at verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 25. Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. If you're at home um, and you can stand, I want to encourage you to do that out of respect for the Word of God, and uh, we will read that either in our Bibles or on the screens in front of us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh 
and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the privilege, Lord, of having this record of your dealings with your people um, in history. We thank you, Lord, for breathing it out so that not only we could know it, but, Lord, we would be affected by it. And we know, Lord, that you are at work in the ministry of, of preaching and teaching of your word. And as we place ourselves under it, Lord, that, that you are seeking to do some things in us. You're seeking to alert our hearts, to convict us of sin, to soften the hardness that may be present. And so, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me, Lord, to be faithful, to be your mouthpiece, so that you would be on display. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that I love to do is I love to play golf. And I, it was good news this week when I heard that on May 4th, some of the golf courses are opening up. It's going to be unusual if people go out there. From what I understand, only one person can play at a time. And they can only take, actually, they can't even take golf carts now. You still have to walk and you have to be masked and all that kind of stuff. But you can still get out there. So part of me is really excited about that. Um, I grew up playing golf. I started when I was 12. And the reason I love it is because it was my first job. I was a caddy and I would watch guys play golf. And I would watch guys who were like in their 70s play golf and just do really well and enjoy themselves. And I thought, you know what? I need to, I need to be doing that. Well, one of the things I love about golf is I love the aesthetics of it. I love the beauty of a golf course, the way the, way the, the, the fairways are, are contoured and the holes are set up and the bunkers are placed in different, in different locations and the roll of the green and just the wonderful trees and the, the sights and the scenery. Um, it's just, to me, is all part of, of the sport, but it's part of the sport that truly is attractive to me. And uh, one of the things as a, as a young uh, caddy and even a young player that I would do and was forced to do is that they would have these golf cards that would give you the map of, of the course and it shows you where all the holes are and, and I would have to write down kind of basically distances from locations because they didn't have those things and as a caddy you needed to know those things and and then you know lo and behold about 30 years later they have satellite technology and so now they can take a picture of the actual course from way up high and they would provide that and you could see it and you could zoom down and look at the hole. It was really, really good and awesome. Well, what they've done today even takes it further. Um, you know, they have these drones now that can go up and, and they do this kind of sweeping overview of the hole. And, and it's, it's almost like you're the, you're the ball in flight going on this golf course. And it's just really amazing that you can do that. So what I would like to do for us today 
is very similar to that. Uh, we are going to be jumping into the plagues. And what I'd like to do is, is to take us on a, a snapshot journey of the, the plagues, kind of like going to a golf course and seeing the big picture. And then we're going to go onto the first hole, the first plague, and we're going to kind of go over like a drone over that hole and see what it is that God is wanting to show us. And ultimately, when we get there, this is where it's going to take us. We're going to be considering the danger of harboring a defiant heart. The danger of harboring a defiant heart. And you've you've already picked up, if you've been with us for any time, that God has said that He is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And the reality is, Pharaoh's heart is already hardened, and it gets harder, but God is also hardening his heart. But there is a danger for us as we're reading this, as we're studying this, to consider whether or not our hearts are hard toward the things of God, Uh, whether that's for means of salvation or, or even just for living and for dealing with sin in our life. And so this morning, we certainly want to deal with that. But let's jump, first of all, to the big picture, uh, the big picture of what's going on with the plagues. So I think there's some things that we need to consider here. And I've come up with five uh, big picture observations about the plagues that hopefully will be a help to you and give you some perspective about how they work together and where we're going and why they are present um, in this uh, in this story, in this history of, of Israel. First of all, I want you to notice that these events are rightly called plagues. Now, they're, they're called in the text signs and wonders and miracles. And we have that in chapter 7, verse 3. It says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And then in, in chapter uh, verse 9, there talks about working a miracle. So these three words are used to describe these events. The word plague is actually not found in the text, but what we do find in the text is found in chapter 7, verse 17, verse 20, and that's just in our story this morning. It's there throughout the plagues, and that is this idea of the staff striking the water or or being used to strike the land. Um, or to to accomplish God's purposes. And so what's happening here, they're called plagues because they are supernatural signs, wonders, miracles. They're supernatural judgments inflicted on the Egyptians. And uh, so certainly this is what they are. They are plagues. That's, That's how they're being played out. Secondly, I want you to notice that there is a progression going on in these plagues. Um, from from a, a week-long nuisance, which is what we'll see today with uh, the water turning to blood, we end up with widespread death. And certainly a nuisance doesn't compare to death. And as we make our way through these plagues, there is a sense in which they move from being a nuisance to actually beings, being mechanisms for death of many people and then certainly the firstborn uh, uh, at the end. Now, um, you can see there on the screen the different plagues that are going uh, to be looking at. There's the blood, there's the frogs, there's the gnats, there's the flies, there's the, the death of the livestock, there's the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, and death. 
Um, these are severe plagues. These are severe events. These are severe judgments, and certainly they are progressive. Um, uh, one of uh, one of the pastors that I read and listen to uh, quite a bit came up with this mnemonic, uh, kind of like you know, naughty elephant squirt water for you know, north, east, south, west. Um, but he did this for the plague, so you could remember what the plagues are. And here's what he said: He said, "Be forever grateful for lasagna because haggis looks dangerously dreadful." It's a mouthful, but it might help you to say something along those lines to remember what all these. Uh, plagues actually are. Be forever grateful for lasagna because haggis, if you don't know what haggis is, it's a good thing you don't know, but it looks dangerously dreadful. Well, friends, at any time during this progression of plagues, um, where, where God is judging Pharaoh in particular and the people of Egypt, they could have humbled themselves. He could have humbled himself. He could have responded to God's judgment with repentance and obedience and relented. And actually, in the story, there are a couple of times when he does. But we obviously see that it is not true repentance. But friends, it's just a reminder to us that when, when God is bringing things on us, difficult times, times of pandemic, it's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves some serious questions. What is our relationship with God? Are we listening to His Word? Are we seeking to be obedient? Are we shaking our fist at Him? Are our hearts hardened by what He is allowing to take place? These are all important things. So these events are rightly called plagues. There is a progression uh, that is taking place within the plagues. Then thirdly, there is a rhythm or a pattern to the plagues. Scholars have studied these plagues um, all, you know, from all different kinds of angles and come up with um, all different kinds of systems and, and ideas. But I think it's pretty simple. I think the text lays it out quite clearly if you take time to, to read it through with a pen in hand or a highlighter in hand and notice some things that are taking place. Simply speaking, there are three sets of three plagues. So three sets, boom, 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 of three plagues culminating in that final plague. And I put this up on the screen for you to be able to see what it is that I'm talking about. The first group, of course, is the blood, the frogs, and the gnats. The second group is the flies, the livestock, and the boils. The third group is the hail, the locusts, and darkness, of course. The last thing, the focal point where this is all heading, is the death of the firstborn. But you'll notice, if you read these different plague accounts, that the first uh, in the group begins um, when God sends Pharaoh or Aaron to go to see, so it says Moses and Aaron to go, to find Moses in the morning. That's plague number one. Plague number two, the frogs. They simply go in to Pharaoh. In other words, they go to his house where his, where his dwelling is. And then the third plague there, there's no interaction. God just instructs the plague. That's in the first group. In the second group, again, you have this mourning, you have this going in, you have no confrontation again. In the third group, again, the hail, locusts, and darkness. The hail, it, you go in the morning, then you're going to see Pharaoh in his dwelling place, then there's no confrontation again. So there's a rhythm, there's a pattern to what's going on here. In other words, 
There is thought going on. There is, there is a structure to what is taking place here. And it's helpful for us to see that. In particular, in group number one, we have the magicians who will seek to um, replicate what has taken place. But by the time they get to the gnats, they're like, no, we can't do this. This must be the finger of God. Um, in group two, we, we find this idea of a distinction, a separation. This is what's going to happen to Egypt, but this is not going to be affecting the land of Goshen where the children of Israel are living. So you see these patterns and these rhythms unfolding in this text, and it's helpful for us then to get that big picture understanding of what's taking place. So fourth, not only um, are they actual plagues, um, but there's progression, there's rhythm. They are real, supernatural, historical events. Now, of course, there are many who cannot comprehend a supernatural God doing supernatural things. In fact, many through history have tried to take out the supernatural from the Bible, and this would be one of those things. There's always the desire to explain away the supernatural and to come up with some kind of a natural explanation of what really, in quotes, happened. And some of these explanations are in themselves things that take a lot of faith to actually believe and to affirm. They would say things like this, parts of the Nile River stirred up the reddish soil, which somehow affected the fish and caused them to die and to stink. And will that stink cause the frogs then to jump out of the Nile onto the land? And because there were so many frogs on the land, that caused then uh, all these insects to come out, which resulted in boils on people. And then, of course, after the summer, then the winter comes with the hail. And following that, the spring comes and there's locusts that arrive, and that's all followed by bad dust storms and darkness. And they would say what the Bible is simply doing here is building a story around a series of natural phenomena that took place in ancient Egypt. It's all natural phenomena, they would say. There is nothing supernatural about it. Well, friends, that, that explanation really is rather ridiculous. And there's a number of reasons why. I'll just give you three to think through. First of all, the plagues recorded didn't take time progressively over seasons, but happened instantaneously at God's command. In other words, there was a point in time when the staff was raised or placed in the river, whatever it was, when the staff struck, the plague began. It wasn't happening over a kind of a long course of time at all. Secondly, the, the extremity of the plagues goes far beyond what mere flooding of the Nile and natural disasters would bring. Uh, the judgment was far more extensive. Third, the magicians were not reacting to natural phenomenon. They weren't trying to reproduce a natural phenomenon. That wouldn't make any sense. They were reacting to what they saw take place instantaneously at the hands of Moses and Aaron. One commentator says it this way, if native Egyptian magicians could tell that the plagues were not natural phenomena, why should moderns a millennium and a half later try to overrule the opinion of observers on site at the time? And this is the problem. Man who is hardened against God, who's shaking his fist at God, always wants to explain away the supernatural. But God in his word is very clear. This is a supernatural event, okay? 
And it's a historical event. So you can go back and you can find historical records that show and talk about the fact that the Nile was blood. People would drink it and they would spit it out because it tastes like human blood. So there's nothing in this text that suggests that these were natural events. The text tells us that these were signs and wonders that are striking the Egyptians. And the magicians, when they've exhausted their abilities, even say to Pharaoh, it is the finger of God. So the very people that are trying to mimic it are recognizing that the God of Israel is behind these things. So they're called plagues, there's a progression, there's rhythm, they're real supernatural historical events. And number five, they serve a purpose. Now, we might say at the end, there are some purposes that, that we can kind of like surmise from the text, but I want to focus in on the purposes that are actually given to us in the text to begin with. So first of all, at the end of the plagues, uh, you will notice at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12, um, that what we have here is these plagues are given to us to expose the impotence of Egypt's gods, that they have no power, they have no abilities whatsoever. And this is what um, Moses writes, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. He's going to do it against all the gods of Egypt. God will demonstrate that they are powerless against him because they're actually non-existent. There's only one true God. Secondly, it is to establish the sovereignty of Israel's God. And there's really four places that we could go here, but these are the statements, and there's a progression here. You might want to look in your Bible along with me because it's not going to be up on your screen. But in chapter 7, verse 17, I want you to notice what it says. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I'll strike the water. So by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Now remember that, that word Lord is Yahweh, it's I am. So one of, the, one of the purposes of the plagues is for the Egyptians to recognize the God of Israel is not just being another territorial God of a certain people group, but as being the God, I am, right? The, the one and only God. And he'll say that next, and that's found in chapter 8 and verse 10. And this is to expose the Lord as the only God. Chapter 8, verse 10, and he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The same is said in uh, chapter 9 and verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on your, your, yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So God is talking here about his uniqueness. He is the only true God. All right, the next one is this, to expose that the Lord is present in the land of Egypt. Chapter 8 and verse 22 says this, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarm of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So this, this Lord, this I am, this God of, of, of Israel, is not some distant God. 
He is a God who is actually present. He is a God who is dwelling in the land. And so he's confronting here Moses, he's con- or Pharaoh, he's confronting the gods of Egypt. He's saying, I am here. I am unique. I am. And then the last one will be in chapter 9 and verse 16. And this is to expose that the Lord is all-powerful. Just listen to what it says. But for this purpose I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is why the theme of Exodus is that I might be known. God is revealing himself. God is on display. God wants to be known. Do you know him? I don't mean know about him. Even Pharaoh knew about him. And certainly he's going to learn more about him. But do you know him? You see, these are the purposes that are in the text, but there may be some other purposes that will be helpful for us. Certainly to to make the Lord known to Pharaoh, to make the, the Lord known to the Egyptians, but also the purpose of the plagues is to make himself known to his people. They would say, wow, this is our God. Look at what he does. Look at his power. Look at his uniqueness. And not only that, through the plagues, he is going to set his people free. So part of the purpose of the plagues is to set his people free. And then certainly to reveal himself. Now by means of Moses recording this, to reveal, for God to reveal himself to the second generation of the wilderness wanderers. There was a need for them to be reminded and to know about their God, about the I Am. And we could say, finally, it's to reveal himself to us. As we have the Word of God recorded for us and we're able to read it and go back and look at the story, it's not just about them there, it's about us now. And God is putting himself on display for all to see in the history of the world um, and so that he can be ultimately glorified. So this is the big picture, friends. There's probably more things that we could say to kind of give a big picture flyover of the plagues. But there is a purpose and there is a pattern. There, there is rightly called plagues and And friends, these are real historical events. Keep those in your mind as you study through them. And of course, each of the the plagues, when they happen, they all kind of go through a similar kind of unfolding structure. The instructions are given to to Moses and and Aaron, and then Moses and Aaron actually go do the plague, and then there's there's the, the result, the panic, the suffering, and then of course there's Pharaoh's reaction to it. So that's very, very typical. And uh, so now we want to shift gears from the big picture to what I'm calling the blood plague. The blood plague. And here what we want to see, uh, first of all, are God's demands. God's demands. Notice, if you would, verses 15 um, through um, 16. I'm going to read it here. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, 
let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. So God now is giving a demand. And here is the demand. The demand simply is this, let my people go that they may worship me. Now certainly Pharaoh's heart is already hardened, but God's demand hasn't changed. Nothing has changed. The same demand is what God now is expecting. God hasn't changed his demand. He hasn't softened it. He isn't seeking to accommodate his demand because of Pharaoh's hard heart. No, God's demands are non-negotiable. Every time Pharaoh encounters God, he is confronted with the same God making the same demands. Friends, God never changes his terms or offers counter-offers to satisfy us. God doesn't change. His standards do not change. His gospel does not change. So friends, we can't negotiate with God. We must take God um, at his word and humble ourselves before him. Friends, the terms of salvation have not changed. We're sinners, we're helpless, and we are without hope. Only Christ's sacrifice can pay for our sin. And salvation can only occur when God stirs our hearts and we humbly and repentantly, by faith, trust in what Christ has done on our behalf. See, God's wrath, God's wrath must be satisfied. God can't say, you know what? enough of my wrath. Don't worry about my wrath. I'm not, no, no, that, 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 that couldn't happen. God doesn't change. His wrath must be satisfied. A bloody sacrifice must take place. Forgiveness for sins must be granted by virtue of the sacrifice and by virtue of the cross. So we cannot adjust the gospel of Jesus Christ to fit our lifestyles or our cultural ideologies. God doesn't change. His gospel doesn't change but our response can change. And so the point here is that God is continuing to bang the same drum with Pharaoh. He's not adjusting. God doesn't adjust. Pharaoh is the one that needs to adjust. We are the ones that need to adjust. So the terms of salvation haven't changed, but also hear this, because I realize that many of us are believers who are listening to this and we're like, yeah, okay, we get that. But secondly, that the terms of our service do not change. We're still to do all to the glory of God. As Christians, we're not to live our lives for self. We're to live our lives for Him. We're to live our lives with Him as our master, not with ourselves as our own masters. You see, we don't change those things. God doesn't change that. This is part of the paradigm, what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We are slaves to him in the right sense. Well, that's the demand of Pharaoh, but there's also the demand on Moses and Aaron. And I want you to notice here, one of the things that is screaming from this text is that the faithfulness of Moses and Aaron. The demand of God is communicated faithfully by them to Pharaoh. This is where we find in verse 15, a lot of these words, go, stand, take, in verse 16, speak, in verse 19, stretch out your hand. And in verse 20, we read, Moses and Aaron, what does it say? Did as the Lord commanded. Something has happened 
in the unfolding drama of the Exodus. The focus is no longer on Moses and Aaron, where, where we're not concerned about Moses, whether or not he's going to be obedient or whether he's going to be overcome with, with his inability to open his mouth and stuff. No, now he's locked in. He and Aaron are, are obeying the word of the Lord. We're not even focusing on that anymore. We see their faithfulness, and because of their faithfulness, it is God then that is on display in this text. They are simply the, 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 the human means by which God is communicating the message and actually accomplishing the judgments of these plagues. He's on display. He's the one who's carrying out his judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Well, these are the demands. Secondly, the, 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 the disobedience here under this section talking about God's demands. Well, and this is, this is God still speaking now, but notice it says in verse 16, as God is speaking to Moses here, but so far you have not obeyed. You see, he's saying to Moses, when you speak to Pharaoh, tell him, listen, you have had opportunity to listen to my word, but you have not obeyed. So what's it going to take, Pharaoh? What will I have to do to get your attention for you to listen to me and for you to bow your knee to me? Will you submit willingly, or will I have to bring judgment? Look, I came to you the first time, Pharaoh, but you said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then you turned on my people with injustice and required them to make bricks without straw under your taskmaster's heavy hands. Then I came to you a second time, showing you that I am more powerful than your gods when my serpent devoured all your magician serpents. But once again, your heart was hardened and you would not listen to me and obey my word. Now, as a result of your disobedience, there shall be blood throughout the land. Of Egypt. So you see what's going on here. God is, is reminding um, uh, Moses what he needs to say, what he needs to do, but he's also telling Moses what he needs to say to Pharaoh. And he's saying, listen, you have not obeyed, and as a result of that, there will be blood. So this is the disobedience, which then leads us into the judgment here under God's demand, because God is still demanding, is still speaking to Moses to say and to speak to uh, Pharaoh. Verse 17 and following says this, Thus says the Lord. And that is a very much a prophetic statement. This is, you know, pay attention. This is God speaking now. By this shall you know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now, friends, we must never forget what God demands, He expects. What God demands, He expects. He is a loving God. And there's a sense in which we, we kind of bristle because we hear statements like I just made. We, we, it seems to rub against what we understand to be God's love for us. But friends, as a loving God, 
he is also holy and consistent in his being. So he demands justice, he demands obedience, he demands holiness, and he expects us to listen to him when he speaks. His words, what he says, they're not irrelevant. They are important. They are his will spoken to us. And he will hold us accountable. He will hold all men accountable. And God had spoken to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh just brushed him aside. He came a second time. Pharaoh didn't seem to be concerned about it. And God says, you know what? You haven't obeyed. There will be judgment. And here's what the judgment will be. Now, friends, far too often, we treat God and His words as if they're suggestions. Helpful principles for living a better life. Like God is some kind of a TV motivational speaker come to help you in your particular situation. He wants to motivate you to be able to live life the best you can now. Well, certainly there's an aspect where God through His Word encourages us to look at where we're going and how we are to live for Him, but He is not a motivational speaker in that sense. He's not giving you little bits of, and pieces of His Word that seem to suit your liking. We must take all of what He says to heart. The good stuff that we consider good and the hard stuff. And in fact, if we are afraid to look at the hard stuff, that, that tells us something about ourselves that we actually think something wrong about the character of God. God in His being is certainly loving. He is certainly gracious. He is certainly kind. But all of His attributes fashion and shape each other. So His love must be a just love, a holy love, and so on and so forth. We must see God completely, fully, not just fixate on one attribute and that's it. And the other side is true. Some people, all they think about God is He's an ogre because all they see is the, the harsh and heavy-handed stuff and they can't comprehend His kindness, His love, His mercy and grace. And they need to step back and see the, the full-orbed picture and understanding of who God is. But friends, that is not how we are to respond to God. He's not a motivational speaker. He's not just there to give us principles. We are to take it all, and we are to place un ourselves under all of His Word. Now certainly it is daunting. Certainly it is heavy at times. Certainly it is a burden too great for us, but that is why Jesus is our great God and Savior. He is the one who carries our burdens. Yes, we're guilty, but He bears our guilt. Yes, we are unworthy, but He is worthy. We don't stand before God on our own. We can only stand before God when we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ because of what He has done for us on the cross. So these are God's demands. And when we disobey God's demands, there is judgment. Secondly, God's demands, but notice now, Egypt's devastation. Here's the fruit of that judgment, verses 20 um, and 21. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants and lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the lands of Egypt. It's quite a paragraph, isn't it? 
So now because of Pharaoh's refusal to listen to obey the word of God, there is blood throughout the land of Egypt. And notice now just the actual plague, the details of the plague and the implications of the plague. And I've kind of summarized them into into five statements here. There is pollution. The Nile is turned to blood. There is poison as a result of the pollution. The fish die in the Nile. And then there is this putrid stench. Because of the blood and dead fish, there is a stench. I don't know about you, but if you've ever spent time um, around lakes. You might happen in the bay occasionally. I've been on some walks where I see, you know, some, some fish kind of floating on the edge and that kind of stuff. And there's a, there's a kind of a stinky smell about that. When I was living in Michigan, you would often see, you know, a fish here or there that was, that was dead floating around. That was an occasional thing. And, but there was always this, this horrible stench that went with it. Now just imagine all the fish in the Nile dying and the stench that would be there. That's incredible. As a result of all of that, the, the, the Nile was not drinkable, and so the people were parched. It's the next word, parched, as a result. Can you imagine? Your, your typical water source is gone, and you're wanting to drink it. Oh, it's still kind of liquidy, but you're like, oh, I'm not going to drink that. They were parched. And then ultimately we find at the end of the text in verse 24 and 25 that there is this panic among the people. They're digging trying to dig wells near uh, the, the, the Nile River to see if they can find some fresh water. So pollution, poison, putrid, parched, panic. This is all what happens with this plague. Now there's some things that we need to take note of as to why this is all happening and the implications of it. So let's talk a little bit about the Nile. The Nile was critically important to the Egyptians and their way of life. It was the lifeblood of Egypt, no pun intended. Without it, Egypt would cease to be a civilization. I mean, the, the Nile was the reason why people lived in that region. It was central to the life, the economy, and the religion of the Egyptians. It provided water to drink and water to bathe in. It provided water that irrigated the crops. It revived uh, the land by bringing fresh soil when it flooded. It was the source of their staple diet of fish. It was their primary means of transportation, of getting goods from one place to another. So drinking, bathing, irrigation, fresh soil, food, transportation, economy, religion, these are all central to the, the life of the Egyptians. And here comes this God of Israel. And he turns that Nile into blood. Now, friends, because it is at the heart of Egypt's life and economy, it was worshipped as their creator and their sustainer. Historical records reveal that the Egyptians considered the Nile, I'll give you three statements, as the giver of life to the two lands, as the Lord of sustenance, as the one who causes the whole land to, to live through his provision. So they, they're deifying the Nile. They even had a song written to express worship and praise to the Nile. 
Just imagine some Egyptian hippies out on, on the side singing the song. Hail to thee, O Nile, that issue from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. He that waters the meadows with recre- uh, which recreated in, in order to keep every child alive. He that makes to drink the desert and the place distant from water, that is his dew coming down from heaven. All right? I don't know what the rhythm of the song is, but there were songs that sung about the Nile and praised the Nile for being this wonderful deity that provided for the Egyptian people. So it's important that we see how important the Nile is to the region and to the people. But there's another thing that we need to note here, and that's this, and that is the Egyptian gods in particular as they relate to the Nile. Because although Pharaoh is the one to whom God is speaking, he is also confronting the various and many gods of Egypt. And there's three Egyptian gods that we should seek to take note of here in this first plague. I'm going to mention them. I'm not going to give you much detail, but just kind of an understanding of how they connect. The first one is uh, Osiris, um, and this is the god of the underworld, with uh, Ray holding the same position in the land of the living. So you have Osiris in the underworld. But he is also um, the god that the Egyptians believed that the Nile ran, uh, or the Nile ultimately was his bloodstream. Okay? So things are starting to take some shape here, right? Then there's a Kanum or Nu, um, and he was the guardian of the Nile and creator of water and life. And he's pictured as a human being with a ram's head. But the idea is he's the creator of water and of life. And then you have Hapi, and this is the god of the floods. Here's what Philip Ryken says about Hopi. Hopi was a fertility god who was portrayed as a bearded man with female breasts and a pregnant stomach. And the idea was that the annual flooding of the Nile gave birth to Egypt and nursed its strength. Now, as you can see, when God chooses to turn the water of the Nile into blood, he's going for the jugular of Egypt's gods. He's going right to the heart of the gods that they are worshiping and the Nile that they worship. The Egyptians, who are so confident uh, in their sophisticated gods, are confronted by this unknown god and ignored god of the Israelites who turns the Nile into blood. So he confronts these gods and demonstrates his power over them. He's saying to them, your gods can't supply all your needs. Only I can do that. He's saying, your gods don't have the power of life or death. Only I have that power. He's saying, your gods are empty. They're impotent and truly non-existent. Now, we might be easily tempted to look back on Egypt and think to ourselves, how ignorant and foolish these people are to think that the way that they uh, they'll think the way that they do and, and to worship such powerless gods, how foolish of them actually to believe that and to hold on to these gods. But friends, hear this, things really haven't changed that much. 
Uh, we don't typically worship carved images anymore. That's not kind of like a popular thing. Certainly, there are some that still do. But most of the gods that we worship come in different forms. They are the things that we think sustain us, that bring life, or are central to what we're doing and living. First of all, there is the God of money. The God of money. Whether it's the value of real estate or whether it's uh, your retirement portfolio, which recently has bounced a little bit, or the ever-changing NASDAQ or S&P, we're a society that bows down and worships money. And this is the God of possessions. Not only do we have money, but now we use that money to acquire things that maybe we actually really don't need. And so we have collections of things that are valuable that really actually have no bearing on our living. Now certainly there's an aspect and, and an element of, uh, of it being fine to, have, you know, to be able to collect certain things, but, but if you worship them, if they end up being, being the idols of your heart, then they have drawn you away from what God desires. There's the God of position and power and popularity. In other words, these are things that I am, I am longing for, I'm seeking to have. We want to be known, we want to be admired, we want to be loved, we want to be followed, we want to get all those likes. There's the God of pleasure, of leisure, and sport. How much time, money, and energy is given to pleasure? There's the God of politics. I mean, there's this drive to, to grind, to make sure that your ideology is in control and moving ahead. So you're going to jump into the fray and you're going to have those arguments and you go and yell and whatever it might be. That's the God of transportation. Say, isn't that weird? Let me just ask you a question. What would it be like if all modes of transportation were taken away from our society for one week? You'd have to walk. There's a thought. It would cripple us. We wouldn't know what to do. And no, you couldn't use a skateboard or ride your bike. All forms of transportation are gone. And so we're going to do all we can to make sure transportation is there. What about the God of the Internet? Oh no, Pastor, you're really getting to the heart of things here. What would it be like if the internet was shut down for a week? It's bad enough when it's shut down for one day in our home, but what if it was shut down all around the world for a whole week? Would we be even able to function? I mean, could we even play Candy Crush anymore? I don't know. Maybe so. Friends, we may not sing songs of praise to these gods. We may not get up in the morning and physically bow down to an image or a man-made idol, but in our hearts we long for these things. We're consumed by them. They drive our thoughts and our actions and our interactions with others. They challenge our wants and our desires. They take our eyes off of what is most important, our love for God, the families that He has given us, the friends that are around us, the church that He's called us to be a part of. Now certainly stepping back, we're not saying that money is bad or having possessions are bad or being in a position of power or, or, or being popular is bad or experiencing pleasure and leisure and sports are bad. All those things have their place, but they can rise up and they can consume you and they can be an idol of your heart. And friends, that is the kind of God that we typically see today. It doesn't come in the form of an actual physical idol, 
but they are gods that we bow down to. Now, as we return to our text, I want you to notice once again how extensive the plague was. Look at verse 19 following. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers and their canals and their ponds and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. So when Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, general statement, all of their water sources are turned to blood. The Nile, the river, the canal, the ponds, the pools are all turned to blood throughout the land of Egypt. The plague was at the same time instantaneous and extensive. And as soon as Aaron's staff struck, the water of the Nile turned to blood, and immediately, uh, not gradually, these kind of things probably happened. One moment, a man is fishing in his boat, enjoying himself in the cool of the morning. The next, he's struggling to get back to shore while fish rise up and float on the surface. One moment, a woman is bathing in the Nile, and the next, she's covered in blood. It's a traumatic experience. One moment, a girl is at the local well fetching uh, the morning water for her family, and when she pulls the bucket up, it's full of blood. See, friends, this is a gruesome sight, as well as devastating to the people. Blood is not clear and refreshing like water. It's thick, it's slimy, it contaminates everything it comes into contact with. And the situation was so bad that the people were trying to dig wells, if you remember, to find water, but they were not finding any. And it's interesting here in the text, it says that the blood was found in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Now, what does that mean? There was something, it could be about containers, but it seems like all the places where um, the blood was turned were, were places where, that were natural places of water, where water actually was fed by the Nile into all these different areas. There seems to be something going on with the words that are used to describe vessels of wood and vessels of stone as descriptions of the kind of, uh, kind of places where idols would be sitting and where they would be in a bowl, so to speak, the idea of made of wood, made of stone. That seems to be the idea from what I understand as the commentators are talking about, the, the way the words are used. Much like if you were to go into the home or a restaurant of people who worship Buddha, there would be this little shrine with a bowl with some fruit in it and stuff like that, with the idol sitting in there. And friends, don't, don't let the familiarity of these stories here, of these events, soften the devastating situation these people found themselves in because their Egyptian king would not obey the God of Israel. It was disgusting, it was gruesome, and it caused great panic among the people. So we've seen God's demand, Egypt's devastation. Now I want you to notice Pharaoh's defiance. It begins, first of all, with the magician's defiance. Look at verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And you asking yourself, wow, it's amazing they did the same. The, the same does not mean as extensive. It just means that they were able to turn some water into 
into blood. They imitated what Moses and Aaron had done, not by God's power, but by their secret or satanic arts. Imitation, friends, is one of Satan's ploys. He comes as an angel of light to deceive. But imitation isn't the same as confrontation. If they were truly powerful, why didn't they reverse what Moses and Aaron had done? In other words, if they had power, then why didn't they reverse the plague and restore the Nile and all the water supplies back to water? The short answer is they couldn't do this. Their powers and their abilities were limited to imitation. In fact, if you think about it, all they did was make matters worse. They just made more blood and compounded the problem even more. Now, of course, one of the interpretive problems here is this. If all the Nile was turned to blood, then where did the magicians get water to turn it into blood? And this is why I'm saying this idea and understanding of the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone being these, these shrines to these gods makes sense. In other words, someone might have water in, in some kind of a, um, a, a skin or something like that that was not affected. It was simply what the natural water that was around the country. And even if they had pots full of water, they wouldn't have lasted long enough. So the simple answer is we're not told, but certainly we can think through this as, as finding a reason why or how they came up with the water for it. But the water ultimately would run out. So this is the magician's defiance. But that defiance then is followed up with, with Pharaoh's defiance. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as, he had, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take um, even this to his heart. So, so what is staggering is how cold Pharaoh is to all that is happening. The heart of his kingdom has turned to blood, but his heart remains hardened, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. And his response in verse 23 is even more staggering. He turns away unconcerned and goes home. He does not even take these events to heart. It's just, it's staggering to think that he could be so cold and respond in this way. Wasn't he concerned about how long the, the plague would last? Wasn't he concerned that one of his main gods was threatened by the God of Israel? Wasn't he concerned that his people would have uh, sufficient drinking water? It seems the answer is no. But what we read next, of course, is a pitiful picture. And it's the, it's the people of Israel digging to find water, desperate for water. I think of it, an entire week without drinkable water. And you say, oh, I can make coffee. Let me just remind you of something. You need water to make coffee. An entire week of enduring the stench of the bloody Nile River. Can you imagine that? An entire week of having no fish to eat, if that's your staple diet. But God is gracious and he only allows it for seven days. That's a mercy as it relates to the rest of these plagues. Now, friends, as we bring things to a close, um, I want to go back to that statement I made earlier, and that is the danger of harboring a defiant heart. 
And I want to make three observations from our text. I want to first of all uh, just focus in here on the reality of a hard heart. Certainly Pharaoh is there for us to observe and to see. But here are some conclusions that I have as I mused on this text as it relates to a hard heart. A hard heart is consumed with self sitting on the throne rather than God. A hard heart refuses to listen to the counsel instructions of God's Word. A hard heart willfully disobeys God's clearly communicated Word. It's not moved by God and His demonstration of power. A hard heart behaves irrationally. A hard heart causes suffering for self and others and thinks little about it. So friends, what is, what is at the root of your hard-heartedness? I'm certain there are other things we could add to that list. But what is at the root of your hard-heartedness? Do you want to be God and rule over your life? And so you're saying, God, stay away. Do you fear God's demands will be drudgery rather than delight? Well, if, if I listen to God, then I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, and boy, all these things I can't, rather than saying, look at the wonderful reality of what it means to walk with God. Maybe it's the fact that you've been through some misery before and you find it difficult to trust anyone. There's a number of reasons why a heart can be hard. But friends, Pharaoh's heart is a theme throughout the Exodus account. But his is not the only heart that we should pay attention to. Surprisingly, we need to flash forward in the history of the people of Israel, the ones who are left in Egypt and who ultimately make it into the wilderness, and consider the hardness of their hearts. Just listen to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 and verses 7 through 19. And just listen as I read. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they should not enter into my rest. So he's looking back at this generation and showing their hard-heartedness. But then he shifts focus to his present audience and says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any uh, of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Well, that's enough for that. But the reality is, friends, we move from Pharaoh and his hard heart to Israel and their hard, rebellious heart in the wilderness to the audience that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to. And then certainly the focus now turns on us. We can have a hard heart also. And God is going to want to chip away at that as we walk our way through these plagues. Secondly, I want you to notice judgment. This plague not only reveals the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh, 
but also reveals the sovereignty of God in his dealings with Egypt. And it's a foreshadowing of the future where God will judge the wicked. There's a section in the book of Revelation in chapter 16 that mirrors the language of Exodus 7. And it applies to the final pouring out of the bowls of wrath against the wicked. Listen again to Revelation 16, verses 3 and following. This is the bowls being poured out. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers that sprang of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So in Exodus, we not only have the display of God's sovereignty in redeeming his people out of Egypt, but we also have this picture of God's final judgment against all those who will resist his will. So there's two choices, friends. Choice number one, accept his revelation as true, acknowledge him as Lord. He will make you to be his people, and he will become your God. Or, like Pharaoh, you respond by going into your house with no concern, rejecting him, and the final judgments of God are visited upon you. Those are the choices. And that's where this text ultimately is, is leading us to this final judgment. But friends, thankfully, it doesn't stop there. There's a hard heart, there's a judgment, but there is also deliverance. See, blood was the means of Pharaoh's judgment and will be the means of God's final judgment against the wicked, but blood is also the means of Israel's salvation and the salvation of all who bow their knee and worship the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, hundreds of thousands of blood sacrifices were made to atone for man's sin. It was a bloody affair in the temple. But they were all temporary appeasements. They all pointed to the sacrifice once for all that would take place in the Son of God who died in our place on the cross. And Scripture says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And friends, this blood is different. Christ's blood doesn't pollute or poison. It doesn't stink. It doesn't leave man parched. It doesn't create a panic. It brings life. It is sweetness to the soul. It satisfies the thirst. It, it is everlasting peace. It brings assurance to the heart. When the blood of Christ is applied to the repentant sinner, its power is instantaneous and extensive. And Christ comes to us and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1 and verse 20. Friends, let me encourage you. Be in awe of man's sinfulness, in particular his hardness against God. 
be in awe of God's judgment that are demonstrated to us through the plagues, but also be in awe of God's deliverance that also comes through blood, but in particular the blood of His own Son shed for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You. We thank You, Lord, for the beginnings of our time as we look at these plagues. And Lord, how You are confronting the gods and the idols of the people of Egypt, as well as the ones that we can find ourselves worshiping when we should be worshiping You. And Lord, help us to be humble. Help our hearts to be softened. Help us to be teachable. Lord, allow Your Word to to confront us and to shake us and to to reveal to us the places where we are um, wandering away from You, where our hearts may be hard in our relationship with You. Lord, in, in one area, Lord, You might seem to have freedom, but in another area, Lord, You are just not allowed in. And Lord, we ask that you would give us, Lord, a softness to open our hearts and give you freedom to accomplish, Lord, what you want to accomplish in our own sanctification. Lord, there are some who are probably listening today who've been around the church for a while who've never bowed the knee to you. They've taken the form of godliness, but they have not actually embraced the reality of the gospel. Lord, would you soften their hearts? Would you draw them to yourself? Strengthen us today, Lord, with your truth. And Lord, would would we reflect on the, the power, Lord, that is present because of what you have accomplished in dying on the cross for our sins, in particular, the blood that was shed for us, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, um, we want to transition now, having uh, looked at a heavy topic here, as it relates to this this plague and and the blood, um, and and to to focus now on the blood that does deliver, the blood that does save, as well as the body of Jesus Christ that was given for us. Let me invite you to get your your Bibles and to have your elements ready as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to read from uh, the very familiar passage of Scripture found in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to remind you what we're told there by the Apostle Paul. He says this, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, reflecting on what the Lord Jesus Christ said when they were gathered, when disciples were gathered together. And then he also said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we want to remember. We want to remember what Jesus Christ did. And we want to remember what He did specifically in us. And we want to be mindful that those truths are still resounding today. So we're reminding ourselves afresh of what Jesus Christ has done. So let me invite you to get your elements, in particular, to get the bread. And let's stand together as we we take the elements together and uh, make sure that um, if your dad's at home, you're serving your family, you're helping them with, with those. We'll take a moment to pray, to reflect, and then we'll take the elements together, okay? So bow your heads as the music is being played and consider the body of Christ and consider the blood.
Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We see you as our great God and Savior who went to the cross willingly and gave of yourself in your body as that sacrifice once for all. Lord, we take now this, this wafer, this representation of your body, and Lord, we, we eat this in remembrance of you. Let's take it and let's eat. And Lord, as we are continuing here, considering your blood, we thank you, Lord, that this is not a blood of judgment. This is a, a blood of deliverance. This is a blood that gives life, that reconciles, that pays, and Lord, that welcomes us into your family. And so, Lord, now we drink this in remembrance of what you have done years ago, but also what you have done in us more recently as you came and breathed new life into us. So we drink this in remembrance of you. Lord, you are kind, you are gracious, you are powerful, staggering, majestic, sovereign. You come to us, you condescend. You draw us to yourself. And through what you've done on the cross in the person of your son, we have been made whole. And you've called us now to live our lives for you, to pursue what it means to be like Christ, to give of ourselves, Lord, for your service. And Lord, to, to do what you've commanded us to do, to see your hand at work in mighty ways. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and for your gift. Now, Lord, may we be faithful. And Lord, may we be confident. And Lord, may we be rejoicing as we seek to serve you this week and in the weeks to come. We ask this now in your name. Amen. Well, friends, it's been good to be with you today. I trust that uh, this week will bring some new experiences that will give you opportunities to serve the Lord, maybe in ways that you hadn't expected. But be mindful about the fact that God is working on you. And he's seeking to change you. He's seeking to grow you. Don't just get angry at the circumstances. See God's hand in them and how he's shaping you during this time to be what he wants you to be. I love you, appreciate you, miss you. Can't wait to see you again. Have a blessed day.